Welcome to the season finale of The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, we will look at Henri de la Tour d'Auvergne, Vicomte de Turenne. Turenne was a major figure in France during Le Grand Siècle, the golden age of the Ancien Regime. Napoleon said his, quote, audacity grew with years and experience, unquote, as some of his greatest victories were when he was in his mid-60s. He was a great general in an age of greats, a brilliant strategist, and he believed in and respected the common man in an age of aristocracy. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 9, Episode 10, Turen, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Henri of Turenne was born in September of 1611, the second son of the Duke of Bouillon and his wife, Elizabeth of Nassau. The Duke of Bouillon was one of the most powerful men in all of France. In addition to his French resume as a leading general and politician in the kingdom, he was also the sovereign prince of the small territory of Sedan. This allowed him to be both part of the inner circle of French leaders, as well as someone with the ability to take an independent path if it suited him. And sometimes it suited him. As one of the trusted friends of Henri of Navarre, who became King Henry IV of France, the Duke of Bouillon was also one of the premier Protestant leaders of France. This positioned him as a political match for Elizabeth of Nassau, Prince of Orange, Stadtholder of Holland, Zeeland, and Utrecht, Count of Nassau, Baron of Breda, leading citizen of the emerging Dutch Republic, etc., etc., at least until his death by assassination in 1584. During the 17th century, when Turenne lived, much of southern and central Africa was growing in population. The Portuguese, then later the Dutch, had their hands full trying to push around the Kingdom of Congo, as well as the Kingdom of Angola, ruled by Nzinga. Further north, the Ottoman Empire was in control of most of North Africa, as well as much of southeastern Europe, including the whole Balkan Peninsula, and north as far as Budapest. To their north, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was in their golden age, at least until decline set in by the second half of the century. To their east, Russia began the slow recovery from war with the Commonwealth as the Romanovs came to the throne, although they wouldn't really be much of a power until the beginning of the 18th century. To the east of the Ottomans, the Safavids were ascendant as Abbas the Great, season 8, episode 8, ruled until 1629. Further east, the Mughal Empire was at its peak and ruled much of today's Afghanistan, Pakistan, and northern and central India. They would, before the end of the century, conquer all of India and become the world's largest economy. They surpassed China to the east, where the Ming Dynasty was ending. The transition to the Qing Dynasty, which originated in the north in Manchuria, included decades of conflict, most of it occurring during Turan's lifetime. In Japan, the Tokugawa shogunate formed at the beginning of the 1600s. Across the Pacific, Spain's viceroyalties of Peru and Mexico were the main political entities, while the Portuguese and Dutch held some lands in the east coast of South America. In North America, the interior remained outside of European influence, but the east saw colonization in earnest. The French were settling along the St. Lawrence River, while on the east coast, the English founded a half a dozen colonies in the first half of the 16th century, plus one founded by the Dutch and another by the Swedish. In Europe, Italy was a battleground for the major powers at the time, while England saw King Charles I come to the throne in 1625, which ended with the establishment of the Commonwealth in 1649. France was ruled by King Louis XIII, although Cardinal Richelieu ran the kingdom. The Dutch had broken away from Spanish rule, and to their east, the Holy Roman Empire was in complete disarray. The Thirty Years' War, which started when Turenne was a child, 
was fought mostly in Central Europe, but involved Western Europe and Scandinavia too. This destructive conflict helped expedite the decline of the Habsburgs, who ruled over both Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. It also helped shift European balances of power, ushering in golden ages for Sweden and France. With an older brother, young Henri was not in line to inherit his father's dukedom or princely authority. But he was still the son of a powerful nobleman and was given the title Viscount of Turenne, and that became his name. Turenne was a sickly child and quiet, supposedly not speaking before the age of four. Fascinated with warfare, the weak young Turenne was shy and had a stutter and just did not appear to be cut out to be a general. His father told him as much, and Le Petit Garçon set out to prove his father wrong. One night, when he was about ten years old, he was discovered late at night outside on the castle walls at Sedan, sleeping on one of the cannons. He did not take well to academic studies, and no amount of beating, the standard motivation of the day, seemed to improve that. But upon being old enough to be told by his father that he appeared even less capable mentally than physically for generalship, Turenne threw himself into military study. Julius Caesar and Quintus Curtius, presumably in the original Latin, were apparently his favorites. At the age of 12, his father died, and Turenne's older brother, Frederick Maurice, became the new Duke of Bouillon and Prince of Sedan. Turenne turned his full attention to martial interests, including getting himself more physically fit. At one point, he challenged an officer to a duel over the man's defamation of Quintus Curtius's portrayal of Alexander the Great. His mother intervened to prevent any bloodshed. He was 13 at the time. Besides his love of military affairs, what clearly emerged from his childhood was his personality. According to Thomas Longville in his book Marshal Turenne, quote, his characteristics as a boy were scrupulous truthfulness, mindfulness of manner, a discretion beyond his years, an extraordinary humanity. Another feature was his generosity. Most of his pocket money found its way into the hands of the poor, unquote. Healthier than he had been as a young child, and apparently quite a bit more mature, in 1625 his mother Elizabeth fulfilled his greatest wish by sending him off to serve under a great general. Her Calvinist sensibilities influenced the decision of her boy's first exposure to warfare. Turenne, at the tender age of 14, joined his brother in the army of Elizabeth's half-brother, that is his uncle, Maurice of Nassau. Maurice was a military genius, or at the very least, a major innovator in military affairs. He and his cousin William Lewis helped usher in a military revolution, but this is all covered in episode 7 of season 4. What's important here is that Turenne got the chance to serve under perhaps the best general in Europe at the time outside of Gustavus Adolphus. This is when his education really began. Maurice spoke to him frequently and shared ideas with him, but also threw him into the ranks of common soldiers. This gave Turenne an understanding of the intricacies of fighting at a core level, something he held for the rest of his life. The relationship did not last long, however, as Maurice soon died. His successor, Frederick Henry, made Turenne an infantry captain at age 15, and scolded him when he put himself in what was deemed unnecessary danger, at least for a nobleman, during a siege. Turenne's time in the Dutch army was not wasted. He was meticulous. He learned a great deal, especially about sieges, and he served with distinction. The armies of the day were divided relatively evenly between cavalry and infantry, with the infantry itself divided in about half between pikemen and musketeers. Armies weren't huge in comparison to many other periods in history, and getting a march on an enemy, that is, showing up in an unexpected place, or earlier than expected, could turn the tide of a campaign, and often led to an immediate withdrawal of the enemy army. For five years, Turenne served the Dutch Republic in their war against Spain, and although this was positively a war of Protestant rebels against Catholic would-be masters, anything that could harm the Spanish and the Holy Roman Empires was considered good for France. So even though the Catholic Cardinal Richelieu was the dominant force in France, they were allied with the United Provinces of the Netherlands. In 1630, at the age of 19, Turenne decided it was high time to serve his own country, and he made his way to Paris, where he was given command of an infantry regiment. 
Turenne served under Marshal de la Force, and in 1634, they marched all over the Duchy of Lorraine and besieged the fortress of Lamont. La Force's son led an attack, but was repulsed, and the next day was Turenne's turn to take the fortress. According to Longueville, quote, the enemy not only kept up a very heavy fire, but rolled enormous stones over the top of the parapet. These stones, falling upon points of rock, broke into many pieces and killed or disabled numbers of Turenne's men as they tried to scale the heights. Nothing daunted, Turenne pressed on at their head, and eventually he succeeded in effecting an entrance into the fortress, which then surrendered, unquote. As in the Netherlands, Turenne served with great distinction under de la Force, whose letters back to Paris were so complimentary that at age 23 the young soldier was promoted to major general. In 1635, he served under La Valette, a cardinal rather than a general, which showed as they were forced to retreat through imperial territory for want of provisions. But again, Turenne came out with an improved reputation, serving exemplary rearguard duty, and at one point ambushing and routing a large pursuing army. The following year, Turenne was hit by a musket ball and almost had his right arm amputated, but managed to survive with all limbs attached. In 1637, Lavalette was dispatched to the Spanish Netherlands and was again outclassed by his opponent. Turenne, though, had important successes, including being the key factor in the successful siege of Breisach, which brought Alsace into the French fold and kept Burgundy safe. He went to Paris to be received by Richelieu, and, theoretically, the king as well. He was offered a marriage of one of the cardinal's nieces, although he refused on the grounds that she was Catholic and he was still very much a Protestant. It was, however, a view into the standing that Turenne held at court, brought on by his military successes, and his inherited aristocratic position. Turenne was still not a true favorite at court, and while at this point he probably would normally be given command of an army, several things played against him. First of all, his refusal to marry Richelieu's niece, and secondly, the fact that he was not Catholic. Third was that his brother was out of favor, which also put some minor stain on Turenne. So he continued to serve, this time under another general, Henri de Lorraine, the Count of Harcourt. After the death of the Duke of Savoy in 1639, French armies were sent south to help decide whether the new child duke would be on the French or Spanish side. At the Battle of Casale, Harcourt and Turenne's army was outnumbered, 20,000 men to 10,000. Nearly surrounded, Turenne pushed his cavalry together in such a way that the Spanish thought there was no way it was the only group. Now thinking they were outnumbered, they ran, and the French killed and captured many in the pursuit, including their cannons and most of their baggage train. This flair for deception would become one of Turenne's trademarks throughout his career. Turenne has several quotes attributed to him about deception through the disposition of forces. Hide them if you're strong, spread them out or even split them up to make them look numerous if you're weak. Lots of those kind of things, very Sun Tzu-like. That same year, Turenne convinced Harcourt to take the Savoyard capital of Turin, although most of the French generals thought it was impossible. The Savoyards held their city and were besieging a contingent of French troops that held the citadel. Harcourt's army besieged the whole thing, so everyone inside was soon starving. This relieving French army was then in turn surrounded and besieged by the Spanish. Turenne, despite suffering another wound, led a successful relief of the citadel, and so at that point only the Prince of Savoy and his troops in the city were starving. So they surrendered, and the Spanish army outside withdrew, giving Turenne fully over to France. In 1641, Harcourt was in Paris doing courtly things, so Turenne was de facto commander of the Italian campaign. At the same time, his brother was involved in a semi-rebellion. He and some other fancy-titled Frenchmen wrote about the abuses of Richelieu. The traditional bad things are happening, but it's not the king's fault, it's the king's advisor's fault, that sort of thing. An army of 10,000 was sent to take Sedan, and Bouillon allied with the Germans and won that battle. However, Once his imperial friends left, he was again vulnerable, and so he negotiated a truce. Bouillon was again plotting the next year with some other nobles when he was arrested. Some of them were executed, but Elizabeth of Nassau plainly stated that if her son was killed, she would hand Sedan over to the empire. 
Other Allied dignitaries, including Frederick Henry, also helped convince the court to spare Bouillon. However, in exchange, Sedan lost its independence to be occupied by the French for eternity, or at least until Napoleon III. That year, both Richelieu and King Louis XIII died. Long live King Louis XIV, four years old at the time. France went into a regency, and her enemies went into a lather. Turenne at this time was given command of the French campaign in the Piedmont, technically under the now-allied Prince of Savoy, who sat back and let the young general do his thing. His campaign, unsurprisingly, involved deception, as he sent a large force to Alessandria, that city founded by Barbarossa's enemies, the Lombard League. But when the Spanish took much of nearby Trino's garrison to help out Alessandria, they were able to easily relieve the city. And that was because Turenne was actually racing the 30 or so miles back to Trino, and there he set up a real siege. Trino was now half as fortified, as the Spanish didn't have enough men in their relief army to fight the besieging French. So they raced off to close by Asti, held by the French, in an attempt to draw them away. Turenne had foreseen this, of course, and he had already provided Asti with provisions and arms to outlast months of attack. He took Trino in six weeks, and the court soon named him, at age 32, a Marshal of France. Back in Paris, the Regency government was divided into factions, and the new Richelieu, Cardinal Mazarin, had it in for Turenne's brother. Bouillon went to Rome, where he was well received by the Pope. He had converted to Catholicism at this point. So Mazarin recalled Turenne to Paris, not wanting him so close to his older and possibly rebellious brother in Italy. Turenne was instead sent to defend the Rhineland against the armies of the Duke of Lorraine and the Duke of Bavaria. Collecting the scattered remnants of the defeated forces of the French ally, the Duke of Saxe-Weimar, he spent the winter in Alsace. He provided proper clothing and horses for cavalry to 9,000 or so troops, using his own money, as well as more that he had borrowed when that ran out. In the spring, he crossed the Rhine, surprised and defeated a piece of the Imperial Army, took Freiburg, and then went back over to the west side of the river. The Bavarians, under General von Mercy, soon besieged Freiburg. Turenne surprised them by quickly crossing back, but was unable to properly break up the siege, and he backed his army off to a safe distance. That same year, another great French general, the Prince of Condé, led France to an impressive victory at Rocroy on the borders of the Spanish Netherlands. Condé was seen as brilliant in individual battles, as opposed to Turenne's well-thought-out positioning and marching. It was said that if you could pick a general for a battle, you'd take Condé, but for a campaign, you'd take Turenne. And for all the kindness Turenne had for what were seen as societal inferiors, including his own troops, Condé could be cruel at times. Both men, however, were courageous and were incredible generals in their own ways. Condé and Turenne joined up armies in the Rhineland, and although Condé was ten years younger, he was of higher station and was given command. Together, they went to attack von Mercy outside of Freiburg. The French outnumbered the imperial troops, but not by more than a few thousand, and Turenne seems to have advised his young commander against the attack. But Condé ordered a frontal assault on a well-entrenched army, who did not give easily. Firing continued throughout the night, and eventually the Bavarians retreated. Both Turenne and Napoleon, who spent his waning days in St. Helena writing about this kind of stuff, thought Condé lost an opportunity there to rout the Bavarians after they had retreated. But fighting throughout the night wore his army down, and he didn't press the advantage. After resting, the French attacked again, but they lost a significant number of men, as by then the enemy had re-entrenched. Condé missed an opportunity to occupy a valley behind the enemy which might have made the second day of fighting unnecessary. When he finally did a few days later, Von Mercy saw what was happening and withdrew, escaping, but leaving the region open to the French. They quickly marched to Philipsburg and took it after a siege of a couple weeks, before storming down the Rhine and taking several other cities. The rapid movement of the army at Turenne's behest gave much of the region to the French, and was a great success. Condé returned to France, and Turenne remained with a portion of the army. 
von Mercy returned to the region and stationed himself in Mannheim, on the eastern side of the Rhine, hoping to draw Turenne out in the open. He also sent word to the Duke of Lorraine to join him with his own force. Turenne marched out with only 500 men to surprise Lorraine, and surprise the Duke he did. The French set up an absurdly large camp for their small force, and Lorraine presumed the army was significant in size. He broke up the siege he was attempting, turned tail, and ran. In March of 1645, Turenne crossed back over the Rhine to attack von Mercy, who had been forced to send nearly half his army east to help the Austrians in Bohemia. Von Mercy, significantly outnumbered, wisely fled, leaving Turenne to stomp all over the region unopposed. Yet in May, after a series of long marches, he let his cavalry disperse in an effort to find forage. The enemy was more than 30 miles away, at least according to reports, spread by the enemy. Outside of Marienthal, Turenne did his best to reform his army as he got word that the enemy was actually approaching. He took command of his depleted cavalry, only something like half had returned in time, while he had his ally General Rosen command the infantry. The cavalry succeeded in pushing back the Bavarian cavalry on his left, but on his right his outnumbered infantry was routed and Rosen was captured. The Bavarians then wheeled around to Rennes with their additional troops, and he ordered a retreat before he was completely surrounded. Turenne, too, was almost captured, but he managed to escape with a few thousand to Hesse. His big error here was not allowing his troops to scatter, an understandable mistake based on faulty intelligence, but rather to select a rallying point for them that was closer to the enemy. They could not regather effectively, and he wound up with a smaller force. Luckily for Turenne, the Landgravine of Hesse, who was nominally allied with France, provided him with troops rather than allow von Mercy to come in and capture him. He also effected a junction with the Swedish army, so about a week after the defeat at Marienthal, he found himself commanding an army of 15,000, which was larger than the one he had lost. Condé, too, was on his way with another 8,000. Von Mercy retreated rather than face this huge army. With Condé now back in command, due to his princeliness, they pursued the Bavarians and caught up to them at Nordlingen. Turenne advised that an attack would be unwise. Although they outnumbered the Bavarians by a small amount, the enemy held a much better position. Condé took it under advisement and decided to go ahead anyway. Condé led a spirited attack on the center and was wounded, although that didn't really stop him. Von Mercy was killed, but so were most of the attackers. Only Turenne on the French left leading the Weimar cavalry, was able to take the desired position. Having no infantry left to command, Condé came and joined him with a reserve of Hessian cavalry, and the two of them wheeled round to take the center. The Bavarian infantry there surrendered, unaware that their own cavalry had defeated the French on the other side and were turning to come to their aid. Condé himself credited the victory to, quote, the skill and courage of Turenne, unquote, but it was a very close-run thing, and without von Mercy's death or the Bavarian cavalry's lateness, it likely would have ended differently. Disaster was avoided, but the French numbers were now greatly reduced. Turenne wisely moved his army west of the Rhine for a few months and used this opportunity to take Trier, reinstalling its ousted leader and creating an ally in the process. Turenne returned to Paris and was offered a duchy, the only problem was this duchy had been promised to his brother, so he turned Mazarin down. In 1646, he marched out to join a Swedish army near Frankfurt, which was being approached by an imperial army led by the Archduke of Austria. Even together, Turenne and the Swedish commander Wrangel were still outnumbered by a considerable amount. As the imperials came closer, their Bavarian commander urged an immediate attack upon the outnumbered allies, but, as Longville writes, Quote, the Archduke Leopold, on the contrary, was busily engaged in entrenching his position. His favorite occupation went on a campaign, and he refused to move until he had finished his works, unquote. Turenne was wary of falling back on the Rhine again. The land had been ravaged by recent fighting, and his army was still huge. Finding enough food would be difficult. He didn't want to attack the Imperial Army head-on with the discrepancy in numbers. So, they went east towards Bavaria. 
Besides being the country of one of the enemies, it was also relatively rich in forage. They pulled up sticks at 2 a.m. and marched right past the enemy while the Archduke continued his digging. They marched 27 miles on that first day, directly into enemy territory. German cities assumed that the Swedish and French were outside their gates because they had already defeated the Archduke, and most quickly surrendered with little or no fight. Marching down the Danube in Swabia, Turan and Wrangel took the fortress of Rain before making their way to the powerful city of Augsburg. The Duke of Bavaria, who had, by the way, promised Mazarin the previous winter he would not fight against France, before then sending his army to join with the imperial forces, sent word to the Archduke that if he didn't come lift the siege of Augsburg, the Bavarians would ally with the French and Swedish and join with their forces. The Archduke's massive army approached Augsburg, and the siege was lifted, and Turenne fortified his army at Lohingen. Winter was setting in, and they weren't in the best of positions, despite their aggressive and successful march. The Archduke went west to defend Ulm, trying to cut them off there, and Turenne and Wrangel followed. Turenne, though, only sent about 2,000 cavalry that way. The rest of his army went southeast, into Bavaria, to take the lightly defended and highly provisioned Landsberg. After securing this city and restocking, he sent 3,000 cavalry straight over to Munich. Turenne himself wrote, quote, Nothing ever provoked the Duke of Bavaria to such a degree, or excited him so much to make peace, as to see the army in the beginning of winter send parties to the gates of Munich, unquote. There was a peace agreement. The Bavarian troops were recalled, and the Archduke responded by taking his army home, fearing he was now outnumbered. Turenne had been bold and brilliant. He managed to get Bavaria out of the fight and send the Austrians back home without engaging in a single major battle. Turenne now had an opportunity to run roughshod through the empire, but he was recalled to help out in Flanders. He told Mazarin that most of his German allies, behind in pay and now being asked to fight the Spanish rather than the Austrians, would refuse to come with him. And that's just what happened. He marched, but they did not follow. Turenne was able to handle the mutiny, and his ability to regain thousands of rebelling soldiers is cited as another example of his understanding of the common soldier. Fighting was slowing down in the west, and he didn't make it to Flanders. The Bavarians had rejoined the Austrians, Turenne rejoined Wrangel and the Swedes, and they again marched through Bavaria, harassing the lands around Munich. But he was once again recalled, although this time it was due to the Peace of Westphalia. The Thirty Years' War was over. A truly devastating conflict, Turenne's strategy over the last two years, as well as Condé's victories in Flanders, helped usher in the peace. It also helped France gain significant land and prestige, as the stars of Austria and Spain were both really beginning to fade. Back in Paris, though, things were not all well. The Italian Mazarin was despised as a foreign interloper, robbing the treasury and manipulating the young king, that sort of stuff. The Paris Parlement, a court of appeals rather than a legislative body, but one which could prevent the king's edicts from being enacted, attempted to intervene. So Mazarin had four members arrested. Parisians, with instigation coming from a cardinal de Retz, took to the streets and threw up barricades. So began the Fronde, a set of civil wars mostly between French aristocrats. Mazarin, as well as Louis and his mother the Queen, were at Saint-Germain, a palace outside of Paris, so Mazarin thought besieging Paris would be the best course of action to quell the rebellion. The Duke of Bouillon, Turenne's brother, joined the side of the rebels. And although there was this popular uprising in Paris, it was mostly about a group of French nobles trying to give Mazarin the boot. Turenne tried to play a middle ground, but Mazarin responded by finally finding money to pay his troops and told them Turenne was no longer their commander. So he made his way to the Netherlands, but the whole thing initially seemed to blow over quickly. Bouillon was given another sovereign princedom, and Turenne was able to return to Paris. Meanwhile, the Prince of Condé, who had helped Mazarin end the rebellion, thought he'd get more of a reward from Mazarin. Nothing was forthcoming, and so Condé began another plot with some former members of the Fronde. In January of 1650, Mazarin had them arrested, 
and in doing so created the second, or new fronde. From Longville, quote, The new fronde was anything rather than a revolutionary mob. It included the next heir to the throne, Gaston, Duke of Orléans, uncle to the king, Louis, Prince of Condé, who was also of the royal blood, his brother, the Prince of Conti, and Henri of Orléans, Duke of Longville, a descendant of the famous bastard of Orléans who had fought by the side of Joan of Arc, unquote. Although there was not yet open warfare, many nobles of France were now on their side. Turenne, too, advocated for their release. He did not want to betray the king or the queen mother, and held the point of view that this was a fight between his friend Condé and Mazarin, the king's scheming advisor. Turenne began negotiating with Spain, with the explicit intent of commanding Spanish troops to battle against Mazarin and Free Condé. That this would have meant battling King Louis didn't seem to cross Turenne's mind. Nearly 20,000 Spanish troops, under the command of Turenne and the Archduke of Austria, defeated a French army. He was at the border of the Spanish Netherlands with about 8,000 troops when a French army of 16,000 took the nearby Rethel. Turenne arrived too late to save it, and should have retreated, but instead lingered. He was soon overtaken by the French army, who attacked immediately. He was initially successful and nearly defeated the enemy commander, but the opposing cavalry came upon his flank and routed his troops. Turenne was captured, and was in grave danger, considering he was a traitor to France at this point. He escaped, though, fighting his way out and rallying his remaining troops. He did what he should have done before and retreated. He was given command of the remaining Spanish troops, while Mazarin somehow managed to make more French enemies by claiming the victory at Rethel for himself. He was there, arriving with some reinforcements, but he was not in command and he deserved no credit. Suddenly he found himself in danger and fled, while the young king and the queen mother were basically locked in the royal palace. The queen began to feel pressure from Paris as well as the nobles so she released the prisoners while Mazarin was not there to stop her. A general pardon was issued in 1651. The two factions remained distrustful of each other. Condé thought maybe he could become the prime minister, but the queen mother didn't really like him and considered having Condé arrested again. Well, assassinated actually, but she settled on arrested a second time. He got wind of this and left with the intention of finishing what Turenne had started, using Spanish troops. For his part, Turenne tried to stay out of any conflict, but eventually the court convinced him to take command of the king's forces, with his brother Bouillon supporting him. They, with the king in tow, went south to cross the Loire. Turenne, worried about a bridge they needed to use, took several hundred horse and found Fronde cavalry regiments attempting to cross it in a bid to capture the king. Greatly outnumbered, he held the bridge until his army came to relieve him. The queen later noted that Turenne saved the kingdom that day. The Marquis de Hockincourt commanded a large body of troops and had kept Condé from overrunning Aquitaine. Near Blenau, he linked up with Turenne, although their armies were separate. Turenne noted Hockincourt was not in a safe position, who responded by scoffing at Turenne, then promptly getting attacked. Most of the Fronde generals did not impress Turenne, so when he saw Hockencourt's camp in smoke, he noted that Condé must have arrived. He was correct. Turenne would now be facing his old friend and the other great French general of the age. Turenne marched his army of about 4,000 to go help Hockencourt against a much larger force commanded by Condé. But Turenne had spied a place he thought would give him an advantage. He advanced, then retreated upon being spotted. Condé hesitated, suspecting a trap, but Turenne kept on retreating, so Condé eventually marched into a narrow valley in pursuit. And that is when Turenne whirled around, pressing them back in confusion. As the retreating forces reached their own advancing allies, squeezed into the valley, Turenne unleashed a hidden set of cannon, causing significant damage. Around this time, Hockencourt returned with the remnants of his army, making the sides a bit more even. Both armies retired, and Condé finally retreated, heading up to Paris where he felt he was needed. Napoleon praised Turenne's maneuver here, but says his strategy was flawed, 
then he should have never engaged, but rather retreated and met up with Hockencourt later. Turenne was outnumbered about three to one, and the battle could have spelled disaster. But it didn't, so Napoleon can shut it. And it is likely that if Turenne hadn't fought then and there, Condé would have chased him, caught his army, and captured Mazarin and the king. Not long after this battle, Turenne and the royal army began to besiege the town of Etam, when they learned that the Duke of Lorraine was approaching with a large force. He raced towards Lorraine to attack him. Lorraine tried to delay Turenne by negotiating, waiting for a Fronde army to arrive on the royalist flank. But Turenne kept drawing closer and closer. Lorraine started sweating, and just in time, as the Allied army was only hours away, he agreed upon a full withdrawal from France proper. When the other Fronde army arrived, they realized they were too late and quickly withdrew rather than fighting. Turenne took his army and the king to Saint-Denis, just north of Paris, while Condé rejoined the bulk of the rebel force just west of the capital. The Duke of Orléans wouldn't let either army into Paris, despite being part of the Fronde. Condé suspected this would happen, as it would not do to have thousands of his Spanish troops in the city. Condé worked his way around north of Paris to surprise Turenne, but Turenne got wind of this and raced back around north in the middle of the night. Near today's Gare de l'Est, Turenne spotted the back of Condé's army marching in between the walls of Paris and Montmartre. The walls of the city enclosed a much smaller area than today's city borders. Turenne sent in skirmishers, but held off a full attack until his big guns and the bulk of his forces arrived. Condé was trapped anyway, with the walls of Paris, the Seine, and Turenne's army boxing him in. Mazarin, not far off, sent Turenne a message asking why he wouldn't attack, even after his infantry arrived. But Bouillon informed him if he didn't attack soon, it would be suspected it was due to his friendship with Condé. So, Turenne sent troops in to attack the Fronde forces, who were entrenched behind suburban barricades. The initial push by the royal forces was met with a devastating counterattack led by Condé, and several marquises were killed as the king's horse guard was sent reeling. Greatly outnumbered, Condé put up a furious fight and both generals were in the thick of it. It was then that Turenne's artillery arrived. Just as he was about to finish off the fronde, Orléans was convinced by his daughter to finally open the gates of the city. Condé's men began rushing in, and as Turenne pursued, they were met with cannon fire. They had been fighting under the Bastille, part of the city walls at the time, and Orléans had also relented to his daughter's pleas there, giving permission for the fortress to use its guns against the royalists. Turenne had Condé up against the wall, literally, but Condé's allies within Paris gave him the means of escape. Sadly for Turenne, around this time, in March of 1653, his brother Bouillon died. Bouillon had worked his way back into the king's good graces and was a close advisor to both his brother, the queen mother, and the young king. Meanwhile, Condé had marched out of Paris and linked up with more Spanish troops. After some chasing around the French countryside, Turenne decided the best move would be to stroll right back into Paris with the king in tow. The court was hesitant, but he was sure the people were sick of Condé who had brought Spanish troops into the city after all, and was now hanging out 75 miles away. Orléans fled with the king's approach, and the people of Paris celebrated his return. Condé remained tied to the Spanish, and the war continued with them. The Fronde was just a piece to the Franco-Spanish War that had been going on for nearly 20 years at this point, itself an extension of the Thirty Years' War. Turenne, now 42 years old, took a break from fighting to get married, to Charlotte de Comont, daughter of one of his mentors, the Duc de la Force. But Turenne was soon on the move again, following the Spanish army but purposefully not engaging it. He didn't want to take fortresses and then have to use his men to garrison them. The Spanish, for their part, were not pressing down into France. Condé would have loved to march to Paris and resurrect the Fronde, but the Spanish wanted to take towns in Flanders and expand the Spanish Netherlands. Turenne knew, having served with them a few years earlier, that Condé and the Archduke would not be able to act in unison. One time he was surprised by the Allies and part of his army came rushing toward him in a panic. He quickly rallied his men and took the only defensible hill in the area. Condé was ready to attack and with such great numbers, Turenne was in trouble, despite being on the hill. 
but according to Longville, quote, the Spanish general absolutely refused to attack. It was nearly three o'clock. Three o'clock in the afternoon was not the proper hour for beginning a battle. His men had had a long march. The end of a long march was not the regular time for fighting, and Spanish generals never did anything except at the regular time. It was the time for resting, and a rest they would take. After a good night's rest, they would very soon demolish the French, who could not possibly escape them in the meantime, unquote. Turenne used the time to put up such entrenchments over the night that, coupled with his position, it would be extremely dangerous for the Spanish to attack, despite their numbers. So they decamped and marched to take a city instead. In 1654, the Spanish besieged Arras, a fortress very important to holding the northern region of Artois. Turenne showed up, but not with his full army. As he was waiting, Condé and the Spanish completed their entrenchments encircling the city and protecting themselves from the relief army. In August, the rest of the royal troops arrived, and Turenne worked to finalize his preparations. He rode around the city, sometimes very close to the Spanish fortifications, and he lost several men to cannon fire. He was taken to task by some of his officers, who noted that if he was spotted, the enemy could ride out and pretty easily take him. He explained that if he rode in front of the Spanish lines, there would be a council of war to decide whether or not to attack, and by the time they figured out what to do, he'd be safely gone. Later, Conde confirmed that this is exactly what happened. What also happened was that Turenne spotted the weak point in the fortifications. Turenne had his own troops stationed south of the city, opposite Conde, and decided to attack at night with multiple feints. The confusion kept the various Spanish groups from helping each other for fear of more attacks. But his main attack came from the northwest, and confusion reigned in the darkness as his men reached the trenches. The Spanish were routed, although Conde took his cavalry and rallied them to push their way through and make an orderly retreat. It was a resounding victory for the French, though, as several thousand Spanish troops were killed or captured, not to mention 63 cannons, 2,000 wagons, and nearly 10,000 horses were also left behind. However, life is not all successes, and in 1656 at Valenciennes, he experienced probably the worst of his few defeats. His army entrenched around the city and fortified both sides of the circumvallation in preparation for the large relief army on its way. He positioned himself on the east side of the river and had Lafert on the west side. Early in the morning, an attack commenced and Turenne successfully kept the Spanish soldiers at bay. It occurred to him that the fight was too easy and he realized it was a feint. He and his men had to cross the Scheldt River and by the time they could really help against the real attack, on Lafert, it was too late. Lafert's forces were completely routed. He was captured, and Turenne had to order his men to retreat. They lost something like two or three thousand, and a similar number were captured. It was a difficult blow that took out a significant number of veteran French troops. This, though, was followed by some good news for the French in the form of the arrival of 6,000 English troops in 1657. Oliver Cromwell had allied with Louis XIV because Spain was their mutual enemy. The following year, Turenne took the army to besiege Dunkirk, a base for Spanish privateers that had pestered England for years. The sand dunes around Dunkirk, as well as flooded land, made getting there difficult, let alone with proper guns, but Turenne insisted. The city was blockaded by the English fleet, as trying to starve out a city with free access to the sea would just be kind of silly. The Spanish fortified Cambrai further east convinced it was the target, but realized their mistake and sent a large body of troops to relieve Dunkirk. After about a week, the Spanish started arriving. They marched from the east, with a canal to their south and the sea to their north. They were certain the size of their army would cause the French to withdraw, and they approached close even though their artillery had not yet arrived, and they didn't have enough tools to properly entrench themselves. Early the next morning, Turenne attacked. Condé, as well as the Duke of York, the future King Charles II of England, saw cavalry and artillery approaching. Condé and Charles, who had served under Turenne, both knew the man well. The Spanish at first did not believe it was a full attack, just some skirmishing at the outposts. But Condé and York knew better, and insisted the battle had come, although it still took some time to convince the Spanish. The two sides had about the same number of men, although Turenne had more infantry, which was an advantage on the dunes. He also had cannons and artillery, 
and cannons firing from the English ships, which presumably was also an advantage. The Spanish did not yet have their big guns. On the left, Commonwealth pikemen advanced upon Spanish infantry and pushed them back. In the center, the French pushed the Spanish back, while on the French right, Condé was stationed and was fighting well enough until his horse was shot out from under him. He was unhurt, but between the center being pushed back in disarray and their commander disappearing, Condé's cavalry fled. Turenne had a great victory, killing or capturing over 4,000 Spanish troops. He had not known the Spanish were without artillery. He moved quickly because he knew they were not yet entrenched. He acted quickly and decisively, and although he had some advantages, his brilliance was to maximize them all. Dunkirk fell in another week or so and was handed over to the English as a gift. The next year, 1659, the Peace of the Pyrenees was hammered out between France and Spain, ending their war which had started 24 years earlier. Condé was pardoned and welcomed back in the French aristocracy because, well, gentlemen at war or something. After this, Louis offered Turenne the title of Constable of France, which would not only make him the official commander-in-chief of the French army, it was also the highest-ranking non-king member of the French aristocracy. But he'd have to become Catholic, so he declined the offer. In 1661, Cardinal Mazarin died. 22-year-old Louis decided it was high time to rule the kingdom himself. Turenne remained an advisor for him, and he spent the next few years in semi-retirement, but still somewhat active politically. In 1667, though, he was back on the field. Louis invaded the Spanish Netherlands, claiming they were now his lands, thanks to his Spanish wife. Turenne was sent in, leading an army of 35,000. The Spanish put up little resistance, but the Dutch and the English were concerned that France would get everything up to and including Brussels and Antwerp, so they helped force a negotiation. A treaty was signed in 1668, and France got to keep some cities in the north, including Lille, but had to return French Comte in the east. Also that year, Turenne converted to Catholicism. He was a staunch defender of his right to be Protestant all his life, and he refused several high honors that would have demanded he convert. But he was something of a skeptic, and he spent his semi-retirement studying, among other things, religion. He and his Protestant wife, who died a few years earlier, had conversed with each other about religion and contemplating at least learning more about Catholicism. He became a Catholic at the age of 58. At that point, it didn't really help him politically, so it was probably a genuine conversion. With the war over and never being much of a politician, Turenne did seem to really retire, hoping to live out his days in relative peace and quiet. But the battlefield came calling again, this time against the United Provinces of the Netherlands. Louis had held a grudge against the Dutch for helping push for the end of his conquest of the Spanish Netherlands, and spent a few years getting the various powers on his side, or at least to promise neutrality, before launching a massive invasion. He put Turenne and his old pal Condé in charge. The invading forces numbered over a hundred thousand, thanks in part to reforms by the Secretary of War the Marquis de Louvois, who, working with Turenne, developed a logistical system to supply a much greater number of troops. The Dutch, commanded by a 22-year-old William of Orange, great-grandson of William the Silent and future King of England, probably had something like a quarter of that number of soldiers. The French marched out to the Rhine and came into the Dutch Republic from the east. Condé was shot in the wrist and had to spend some time recovering, so his men were put under Turenne. The massive force overran several entire provinces with ease. Overijssel, Utrecht, and Gelderland fell without much of a fight. It happened so quickly that they probably could have taken Amsterdam, but they spent time capturing so many cities along the way, it gave William time to react. He reacted in the way that his uncle Maurice, Turenne's first real mentor, would have done. He opened the sluices and cut the dams, flooding the way into Holland, Zeeland, Flanders, and Brabant. There was chaos in the Republic and the fields were now flooded. The DeWitt brothers, who had led the government, were killed, and William was elected stadtholder, putting the House of Orange back in charge. First, he sued for peace, offering up significant territory which would turn the Republic into almost a rump state, while allowing France to easily conquer all of the Spanish Netherlands. But Louis wanted a complete surrender, so they fought on, 
Of course, this made most of Europe ally with the Dutch in order to check French ambition. The Elector of Brandenburg and Duke of Prussia came to help the Dutch with an army of 25,000. The Habsburg Empire, of all things, traditional enemy of the Dutch for over a century, brought an army of nearly 20,000 to help stop the French. After a series of masterful marches up and down the Rhine that prevented the Germans from crossing over the river, Turenne joined his forces with the Bishop of Munster. They proceeded to march further into Germany, taking town after town in Westphalia. The reluctant elector of Brandenburg could not engage Turenne before his linkage with Munster and was unable to do anything with his army. Napoleon praised this campaign, saying that, quote, during the winter of 1672-73, to First, he saved the elector of Cologne and the archbishop of Munster, the king's allies. Second, he defeated the Prussian army and compelled the grand elector to detach himself from the emperor and to make his peace, unquote. Turenne camped near Frankfurt to try to prevent imperial forces from reaching the Rhine, while King Louis besieged and took the important city of Maastricht. Count Raimondo Montecuccioli, who, like Turenne, was in his 60s, had started out serving in the infantry, and was highly experienced and well-regarded, led the imperial army. It included the forces of the ever-present Duke of Lorraine and about 40,000 men, nearly double that of what Turenne had with him in Germany. Montecuccioli reached the Rhine and began building bridges to march into Alsace, but besides a contingent of cavalry, it was a feint, which Turenne bought completely. While most of the German army was actually linking up with the Dutch in the north, the French were busy defending the very quiet and unthreatened Alsace region. Turenne was trying to think too many steps ahead of Montecuccioli, and if he had simply stayed with him, probably could have prevented the link-up with William of Orange. It was a brilliant moment for the Italian general, and one of Turenne's few major blunders. It was, as Longville writes, quote, once more a campaign in which Turenne had no fighting beyond skirmishing, but a campaign wherein for the first time, instead of outmaneuvering his enemy, he was outmaneuvered himself, unquote. In 1654, more allies joined the Dutch cause as it no longer seemed hopeless, and France was seemingly trying to take over for the Habsburgs as the big bully on the continent. The English, too, withdrew from their alliance with France, although a large English contingent stayed, remaining loyal to their commander, Turenne. This group included the future Duke of Marlborough, John Churchill, who would make his reputation fighting against Louis XIV in the coming decades. That summer, in order to prevent two enemy armies from linking up, Turenne crossed the Rhine and marched into southeastern Germany so rapidly he covered something like a hundred miles in less than five days. Outside the town of Sinsheim, he met a force about equal in size to his 9,000 men. Turenne led from the front at that battle, and when the day was over, the French were victorious. They had lost over a thousand men, although the enemy lost maybe twice as many, plus a few hundred captured. He continued chasing after them, but wasn't able to find another battle, while imperial forces eventually were reinforced and marched to the Rhine. Louis panicked, and Louvois advised him to pull back. Turenne calmly wrote that since he was in Germany, they wouldn't dare to enter France, but if he withdrew, they'd be doing the empire's work for them. He said if he backed off, they would be the ones who could do as they pleased, and France would lose everything on the border to them. Quote, I know the strength of the imperial army, the generals who command it, and the country in which I now am. I am prepared to take the whole responsibility, and I will answer for the event. Unquote. Convinced, Louis instead sent reinforcements. Turenne shadowed the enemy up and down the Rhine in Alsace, but Deception by the people of Strasbourg allowed the imperial army to cross just before Turenne got there. Nearby at Ensheim, the French and German armies lined up to fight. The empire had something like a 3-2 to two advantage in manpower, but with another enemy army on the way from Brandenburg, Prussia, Turenne felt he needed to engage before becoming overwhelmed. Ensheim was a large bloody battle with fierce fighting. The Germans lost more, but had more to lose, and the French captured some of their guns, but it was a relatively inconclusive battle. Both commanders retreated to lick their wounds, and France could claim victory on that fact alone. An enemy army wasn't marching into France. However, the army of Brandenburg was on its way, and Turenne would have to be brilliant once again to prevent disaster. He proved up to the task. 
When winter came, it seemed clear that Turenne was wintering in Lorraine to the northwest, so imperial forces scattered throughout Alsace. They had 60,000 or so soldiers and needed the expansive territory for foraging. But Turenne quietly stole his way back into Alsatian territory by marching southwest around mountains and coming up from the south in the dead of winter. He was able to chase the small contingents of cavalry and other German soldiers across the Rhine, and then when he met the main German force, while still probably outnumbered, he was much less so. At the beginning of the battle, with the village of Turkheim to his left, it appeared as if his right was going to be the focus of his attack, and the imperial forces, led by Brandenburg, responded in kind. But Turenne led a large contingent of men through a gorge on his left and emerged north of Turkheim. He had waited until late in the day to begin the engagement, and by dark, he was positioned over the enemy's right flank. Under cover of darkness, they fled the field. Little significant fighting took place outside of the Turkheim area, but Turenne's forces killed or captured something like 5,000 enemy, compared with about 1,000 of their own killed. The Imperials retreated to the Rhine, just as he had planned it. Turenne had actually written a letter to King Louis in October a few months prior, writing, quote, pretending not to be able to resist the enemy after his junction with the Elector of Brandenburg, I will still retire before them to give them the greater confidence. I will retreat into Lorraine, after which they will not fail to extend themselves all over Alsace. Then I will fall upon their quarters by a way by which they will never expect my approach to surprise them, and I may perhaps oblige them to repass the Rhine and take up their winter quarter in their own country, unquote. It would be his last victory, but it was a great one. He quickly recovered all of Alsace and was celebrated as a hero in Paris. It looked like the imperial army would soon be retaking French Comte and ravaging Champagne just several months prior. Instead, King Louis made Louvois apologize to Turenne. He was now 63 years old and he begged to be allowed to retire, but war was still raging across Europe, and Louis XIV told him France needed him. In May of 1675, he set out again to the Rhine and crossed his army to the east bank of the river to take the fight to the Germans. He outmaneuvered the empire, commanded again by Montecuccioli over the next few months, and Napoleon said that, at least for this campaign, Turenne proved himself infinitely superior. Turenne forced the enemy into an unfavorable position and prepared to attack. He had marched them into a spot where they were at a disadvantage, and he was sure of his victory. However, when inspecting some artillery batteries, he was hit by cannon fire and killed instantly. The French army was thrown into disarray, but a full battle never started. A few nights later, they retreated in good order and eventually made their way across the Rhine, although there was a hard-fought battle to complete the crossing where thousands were killed on both sides. Turenne was honored at home and was buried in Saint-Denis, the tomb of the kings of France. Louis XIV said that Turenne saved his kingdom, so he deserved to be laid to rest there. In a time when nobility might command entire armies at a young age, Turenne still started his career as a lowly musketeer, and he never forgot the lessons he learned there. According to Longville, Quote, on campaigns, he sometimes shared the food of the private soldiers. While very generous, he was scrupulously economical, and he was at least as scrupulously honest. Unlike most generals of his period, he never sought to obtain wealth through his military successes, nor did he attempt advancement by interest. And when he died, he was rather poorer than when he had first inherited his patrimony, unquote. He had the benefit of serving under his uncle, one of the greatest and most innovative generals in history. He learned from his other commanders as well. According to Henry Hozier, quote, he had served under four general officers, the Prince of Orange, to whom he said he owed the knowledge of how to choose well a camp and attack well a fortress, the Duke of Weimar, who he said gained mighty results with no resources, Cardinal Lavalette, from whom he had learned to discord the delicacy and gallantry of court and assume a military tone and Count de Harcourt, from whom he learned that diligence and energy are the main means of success in warlike affairs, unquote. Henri de la Tour l'Auvergne, Vicomte de Turenne, was a consummate strategist and campaigner. Napoleon named him one of the seven greatest commanders ever because of his ability to maneuver in addition to winning a battle. Turenne saw the bigger picture and would prefer to march around an army and win a war if he could rather than fighting an actual battle. 
Turenne was obsessed with generalship from a young age, and he learned. He learned how to fight. Then he learned how to prepare to fight. Then he learned how to win a fight. And finally, he learned how to win without ever fighting at all. That will do it for Season 9. I hope you enjoyed it. I can't tell you when I'll be back. I haven't even considered any subjects for a Season 10. But at some point, I'm sure I'll get back to writing, which will lead to recording, which will lead me right back. Until then, thanks for listening.